This is a Diet of Brussels. What's the European elections mean for Brexit? Um, this is one of those episodes that I never thought I'd be recording. Uh, recently had my four-year anniversary reminder on Twitter for this uh, podcast, which is about three years more than I thought I'd be doing. But also, uh, at the point that we started, the, th- the thought that we might still be in the first stage of this process at the time of these European elections seemed somewhat incredible that uh, the UK was going to have made some choices, moved on and would be out and wouldn't be contesting them uh, at all. And yet here we are, uh, the day before the European elections on the the Wednesday, talking about... uh, Uh, something that is going to happen and that will produce MEPs who will sit in the European Parliament representing British uh, constituencies. Now, quite apart from that, I think, uh, it's just strange to reflect on what this tells us about Brexit, just the, the vagaries of the process that it's always been clear that there would be uncertainties and delays and problems and all the rest. But it's moments like this that I think are, are useful for taking stock. And that's apposite because uh, that's what these elections will be. Um, the reason I'm recording this the day before is twofold. One, because I very much want to encourage you to vote because I think that voting is always a good thing. But secondly, uh, because I'm not going to be around next week, uh, because I had made some uh, holiday plans uh, at a point where I thought that this would not really be uh, much of an issue. So to spare you the distraughtness of not knowing what I might think about the results, I'm going to tell you what I think about the results, because I can already pretty much guess what they will say. The key message in all of this is that the election of MEPs doesn't have a direct effect on Brexit, but it will have potentially a substantial indirect effect. Now, just to to clarify that, if you've been looking at the campaign literature that you might have seen, and you might have had to have looked to find that campaign literature... The parties that are fighting this European election here in the UK are not fighting it about the powers of the European Parliament and the preferences in policy terms that their MEPs would fight for when it came to uh, representing those who voted for them. Instead, as always with European elections, Uh, here and in most other countries as well, it's been fought on domestic issues, national issues, rather than the issues that shape the European Parliament. So MEPs, to remind you, have a very limited role within the Brexit process. So Article 50 requires that the European Parliament gives its approval to any deal signed between the UK and the EU. But, as has been clear for a very long time now, uh, at least a year and a half, if not two years, the European Parliament has a solid majority behind the approach that the uh, Commission has taken in the negotiations. 
it has no substantial constituency and will have no substantial constituency for not approving the deal. Uh, its key concerns around citizens' rights were mainstreamed right at the beginning of the process. Uh, Giefer Hofstadt, who was the uh, lead uh, for the parliament in this process, was kept very close and uh, a real effort to keep the, the European Parliament on board in marked contrast to other negotiating parties who are discovering that not keeping your parliament on board at some point comes back to bite you on the backside. So whilst there is a vote of approval on the uh, withdrawal agreement, that's it. MEPs, changing the composition of the UK's MEPs, won't materially affect that particular power. However, what it will affect is the way in which national politics talks about the issues and where we are right now. Let's think a little bit about what that effect might be, because we're at a strange time now. We've just had Theresa May yesterday announcing the presentation of the withdrawal uh, agreement bill, uh, which would... um, create the obligations in UK law to match the requirements of the withdrawal agreement. But uh, that has gone down like a lead balloon with MPs, much as uh, everyone had thought it would. Um, But really the intention here is to try and move things along. She is clearly locked in a tussle with the 1922 committee about the longevity of her position which means that she is uh, really driven very much by internal party uh, concerns at this stage. And the offer that she made yesterday was one which tried to have lots of opportunities to get buy-in from MPs, whether that's on uh, alternative arrangements, whether that's on a potential second referendum, workers' rights, environmental protections, all the things that you've heard over the past six months or more. And by adding these stuff, uh, these things into uh, the bill, she hopes that she can potentially get people interested enough to end up discovering that this is not such a bad thing and we should take it whilst we go. And uh, there we are. Now that is very much a move that has the feel of a Prime Minister who feels that there isn't really a whole lot left to play for. Uh, The the distinct impression is that this is just some rearranging of deck chairs before uh, the inevitable sinking of uh, Theresa May uh, in the very near future. But for me, I think one of the things that's more interesting is the timing. Here we are, two days before a UK-wide election, a Europe-wide election, and Theresa May is not going out there to sell a bold, brave new vision of what there can be, but rather presents a sort of a ragtag effort to try and salvage her only policy, in effect. Not even her landmark policy, it's her only policy. And in doing so, I think it really underlines the difficulty that the Conservatives have had around this European election, that there has been minimal 
campaigning. There hasn't even really been that. There's just been no campaigning. There's been no effort to make a big sell to try and communicate a, a vision. And uh, understandably, polling has absolutely tanked for the Conservatives. That said, uh, it's also clear that Labour has suffered very badly from its very confused and confusing position on Brexit. Uh, if you look at the polls, you can see that a lot of Labour, a lot of people don't really understand what Labour is for. Um, and uh, to be honest, I also wonder what Labour is for at the moment, other than uh, we should have a Labour government who will sort this all out. And that actually probably is what Labour's Brexit policy has been, is that this government is rubbish, we need a Labour one who will sort it all out. Now, that's all well and good, but in the context of presenting a clear message about what kind of Brexit, if any, the Labour Party would fight for once it came into power, uh, it's clear that there is a real gap uh, and very contradictory messages. Some people saying this obviously is a Labour Party that wants to leave, another saying it's obviously one that wants to stay, and uh, just no coherence at all. So Labour too are finding themselves going backwards in the polls. In some cases, they're coming third after the Brexit Party and uh, the Liberal Democrats. And in Wales, we've seen this week uh, a really quite startling set of polling, which puts them even further behind, which would be easily their worst result in over a century of uh, elections in the Principality. So th the reason for focusing on party politics at this stage is this is the way that the debate has been framed. And that tells us pretty much already what the impact of the European election results will be. Because the main channel of operationalising this set of results will be through the competition of parties. So we're going to have two groups of parties. We're going to have those that do well and those that do badly. Now, the ones that do well will be the Brexit Party, clearly. It will also be, though, uh, the Liberal Democrats, who will have a very good showing, uh, we're likely to see a strengthening of the Greens. Uh, we might well see uh, an improvement in the position of the SNP, of Clyde. Uh, of all these parties that are typically rather marginalised in the debate. But they are look set to do relatively well in the relative, relevant parts of the country. Now, uh, for them, what that will prove... Uh, what they will claim is that this vindicates their uh, policy preference. The people have spoken and they voted for us. We have a very clear position on Brexit, so we should do that. So if you like, this is the vote as quasi-referendum kind of approach. Here we are. Uh, you've not given us a, a referendum, but if you did, you can clearly see that a lot of people support our point of view. And again, uh, we're going to see the contrast between the Brexit party who will claim uh, most of the hard leave, uh, no deal uh, votes because UKIP is going to do very poorly and it seems almost inconceivable that they will have any MPs, MEPs at the end of this. 
So they'll have all of the no-deal vote, but you'll then have a number of parties that represent a Remain vote. Um, but taken together, you might not find that there's actually so much of a gap between the two. I'm sure people will produce handy diagrams in the coming week or so to show how uh, no-deal uh, stacks up against Remain, against uh, those parties that fall into neither camp, uh, and show that this uh, demonstrates that people actually are divided in their opinion. And that much, I think, is, is pretty much clear, is that uh, we know that the headline split between Leavers and Remainers remains fairly stable. It drifts towards Remain uh, over time, but not hugely and not massively and not uh, inevitably. So expect to have some weeks from now of people claiming that this is a vindication of their party's position. But alongside them, you're also going to find the second camp, which is the parties that didn't do well. And I've already indicated to who those will be. They will be the Conservatives, first and foremost, but also Labour. And for them, the presentation will be, very obviously, this shows the frustrations that people feel about Brexit, the divisions that are there. And we offer the compromise middle way between the horrors of a no deal and the constitutional terrors of not leaving at all. We are for uh, some kind of Brexit, but one that is done with a deal. And actually what this shows is that we are the sensible compromise uh, and is a vindication of our approach. Stop me if you've heard this one before. The reason for this, I think, is uh, multiple. Firstly, uh, these parties actually don't have another argument at this stage. They have had uh, the opportunity to reach a deal and an agreement in their negotiations with each other. Uh, it's clear that that was never likely to succeed and didn't uh, succeed. Uh, didn't even really get close, just as uh, everyone had thought. But also, uh, it speaks to the relationship between the European elections and national elections. We still know that in uh, polling, when you ask people about their preferences in national elections, still there is not quite the shift that you have seen uh, on polling for European elections. That The Brexit Party does well, but it doesn't do nearly as well uh, as it does in uh, the polls for tomorrow's uh, vote. So people treat these elections differently. That European elections typically are moments for registering discontent and protest, uh, voting with your heart rather than your head. And so the play for the, the two big uh, parties is something like, well, you've had your moment to show your displeasure and now we need to... Uh, reflect that by moving on in Westminster where the real decisions are made and the real power lies. And again, this really speaks to how people uh, in Westminster, as much as in uh, uh, the country, view European elections. The MEPs are somehow unimportant in what they do. Uh, they don't really matter. Um, you know, we elect them, but they go off and then they do something for some years and then we vote for them again. So again, it's about reframing the debate back to the national uh, arena 
And uh, still, at this stage, we have two parties that dominate Westminster who control the agenda and between them could easily reach uh, a decision if they were so minded and at this stage were so uh, uh, able uh, to marshal uh, their members uh, behind a whip. So the consequence of these European elections will be basically an effort to try and own the narrative of Brexit, that uh, all sides will claim a victory, real or moral, in the process. Uh, They will seek to try and uh, use this as leverage to move on the looming debate on the Withdrawal Agreement Bill. Now, what we know from that withdrawal agreement bill already is that things look very poor for the government. We've got enough backbench Tories uh, who have changed their minds since uh, Meaningful Vote 3 to say that uh, there's very little chance that this bill is going to get passed. It may be that uh, the strength of showing of the Brexit party becomes an additional tool in the whips uh, Armoury uh, for the Conservatives, they say, look, here is a coming threat. You need to uh, make sure that you get this through because otherwise we're going to lose this to uh, a group that has uh, interests that are deeply uh, unfriendly towards our own preferences. You might not like it, but it's much better than the alternative that's out there. That may well be the case, but we know from before that... Threatening MPs with the alternative of a no Brexit uh, outcome didn't work, uh, just as threatening the alternative of a no deal Brexit ahead of the first original deadline at the end of March uh, didn't seem to have a great impact. So all the signs point towards more blockage uh, and then, by extension, towards a leadership contest. And really, for me, this is maybe the main message, is that all of this election ends up being cast aside once more for uh, the question of national party politics, that we will end up having a leadership contest, and uh, I can't even think too much about that right now, because uh, who knows what might come of it, which, actually, at the end of it, we'll still be confronted with the same situation that we have at the moment, the same choices, the same parliamentary arithmetic, Uh, all of the things that we know now and yet we seem unable to cope with. Maybe the final point uh, to think about in this is, well, what are MEPs for? What do they do? Again, I'm going to encourage you to go and vote uh, if you are able, um, because MEPs do make uh, an important difference. They are co-legislators in the European Parliament, uh, in the European Union. So, pretty much all the legislation the European Union produces has to be agreed by the European Parliament and by the Council of Ministers, where member states are represented. If they can't agree, then legislation doesn't pass. So, MEPs have a real input into the decisions that the European Union makes. And importantly, we need to remember that at the point that the UK does leave the EU, which still seems to be where we are heading, the UK is committed to applying 
the legislation that's already in effect in the European Union. And that will include anything that gets decided by this new European Parliament from uh, the beginning of July with British MEPs in it. We've already seen instances in uh, recent months where uh, British MEPs' votes have been crucial in securing a majority. So the decisions that the European Parliament make are not just important in of themselves, but they also will have a lasting impact on the UK even when the UK leaves, including leaving with no deal because the... uh, Terms of the Withdrawal Act require that the UK follows uh, UK, uh, EU acquis uh, even without a, a withdrawal agreement uh, being in effect. So, quite aside from the role of MEPs in selecting a new commission, uh, being involved in decisions about budgets and financial perspectives, which will be next year, quite apart from all those kinds of more uh, organisational kind of aspects, just generally MEPs matter, that they do things that matter. And one of the tragedies always is that I end up listening to people talking about how they're going to vote in European elections to send a signal to Westminster, quite neglecting what signal it is that they send to Strasbourg and Brussels, sometimes Luxembourg, uh, because... uh, you end up with a situation where you've got MEPs who aren't really necessarily representing what people are interested in the European Parliament doing uh, in its actual powers, but rather about what they want uh, their country's relationship with the EU to look like. Or indeed, in some cases, just completely different kinds of issues. So if you want a European Parliament that... uh, works for you, if you want it to do things that you would like to see it do, then you should vote for a party that reflects your preferences on those issues, rather than voting for a party that reflects your interests on issues that are not within the remit of uh, the European Parliament's powers, including Brexit. Now, I say that partly because just getting the the policies that you want is, uh, I think, one of the the most obvious things that you can do as a voter and as a participant, but also for the reason that I just outlined, which is that already the battle lines, the meaning of the election will be very clearly drawn and actually won't really bear much relationship to how people voted uh, at all. Everyone claims victory in these things, that they will draw a lesson and tell us what this means. So while I'm on holiday, you might ponder that, you might consider the way in which different parties and politicians try to claim the narrative, claim momentum in all of it. And when we come back, we can have a look and see if I was right or if I was wrong. But until then, uh, remember to go and vote and I will talk to you again soon.